place it comfortably. Let me just share with you a very wonderful wildlife moment as I was walking up here just then. I was walking up that path and I saw what appeared at first to be a, a giant caterpillar. It's two metres long, like a caterpillar, two metres long, winding itself across the road. When you look more closely to it, and its little caterpillars, nose to bottom, following other, each other like cattle along the way, just slowly winding their way along the path. I'll make a reference to caterpillars later on in this talk. But uh, this, to, uh, as, a, as a starting off point for this uh, talk, I want to recite to you a um, koan, a very playful koan um, from the Mumon Khan, which is case 12. And it's called Zuigan Calls His Own Master. Zuigan called out to himself every day, Master. Then he answered himself, Yes, sir. And after that he added, Become sober. Again he answered, Yes, sir. And after that, he continued, Don't be deceived by others. Yes, sir. Yes, sir, he answered. And the commentary on it is, The Master Zuigan himself sells himself and buys himself. He has a lot of angel masks and puppet masks that he plays with. For what reason? Look and see. A calling one, an answering one, one that says, wake up, and one that will not be looked down upon. But you must not stick to these appearances, for that is your former mistake. And uh, imitating others is only the mental disguise of an ox. And the verse, those in search of the way do not realise the existence of the true self. This is because they recognise only the relative mind, which is the origin of our eternal transmigration. Foolish people take it for the true self. So this Zen teacher looks like he's crazy, talking to himself. Maybe he'd fit an assessment of a multiple personality disorder. Uh -huh. But if you look in, to this koan and you see it for yourself, you will see that Zuigan is the sanest person in the world. But anyway, this is the launching off point for a theme that I want to follow through this talk, which is about deception. That's a theme in the, in the koan. Don't be deceived by others. Although, what is meant by others in this koan are not the usual suspects if you ever come to it as a car. I'd like to talk a little about deception in the world that we live in. The older I get, the more I think that the world that we live in is just simply crazy, absolutely mad. Mm -hmm. And um, you can't really believe anything that you're told anymore, you know, particularly through the media and so on. Um, or through business and so on. Do you know we have 
Like, say, in the business world, we have advertising which is there to deceive us into buying certain kind of goods. They play on our emotions. That's what they do. I had one the other day where um, an app I had, the, 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 the uh, subscription ran out, and they sent a message and say, don't you want to be our friend anymore? We've been together for so long. And so we have a personal relationship. Mm -hmm. That's deception. Mm -hmm. Politicians do it all the time. Mm -hmm. And um, to take this out of the, the abstract into something very concrete that just happened recently, as an example of that, we had a by-election in North Sydney and the successful candidate, it was revealed later on, actually wrote out a statutory declaration saying that she lived in the area for 10 years when she didn't. <laughs> Deception. And then when she's caught out, she says, I didn't really intend to do that. Further deception. You know, we kind of, it's so commonplace, we kind of, you know, get a bit cynical about it or sceptical about it. But it can take, deception also takes on um, more sinister um, overtones as well. And a good example of that is um, sexual abuse of children by clergy. You know, his people dressed in robes representing virtue, purity, and gaining the trust of young children and then deceiving them in that guise, which is shocking. Mm -hmm. It happens at all different kind of levels. Even in families, um, and most families are dysfunctional in their own way, um, there is a deception that occurs. People in families will... will Will, will claim or assert that someone else is crazy or someone else is anxious or to, someone else is too sensitive, whatever, and they're actually disguising their own anxiety. Um, I call it the politics of anxiety, people owning, disowning anxiety all over the place. Mm -hmm. um, <clears throat> I had, a, had someone who's... I've had many people who've said similar things to me over the years they're talking about their own family that they come from and the dysfunctionality of it. And they say, am I crazy or are they crazy? I said to someone the other day, we're all crazy. <laughs> we're all crazy. But the way through is to recognise our own craziness. You know, if we, if we come from that point of view and recognise it, then that is a way through. And owning our own stress and our own anger and our own anxiety and as, as Dharma practitioners doing that rather than hiding behind a, what's referred to as a serenity mask. You know, it's being, being, being aware of that craziness that exists inside of us as a way of healing that craziness rather than projecting it outwards. But if you, if you want to look at a more evolutionary psychology understanding of why human beings are so deceptive. Um, the theory being that when the evolutionary tree shifted to developing primates like apes and human beings and wolves and then dogs and so on, one's called simian and the other was lupine, or simian consciousness, lupine consciousness. And Simian creatures like primates learn to survive by deceiving. I'll give you an example. Um, some gorillas walk along a track and they're just 
mosing along the way, one gorilla sees a banana on the side that the other gorillas haven't seen. So instead of just rushing out there and getting it, and getting it you know, then everyone would fight over it and get it taken off it. It looks at the sky and wanders around like this. <laughs> and then everyone walks off and it goes to get the banana. Right? That's a survival mechanism. Whereas wolves, a straightforward creature, and dogs are a straightforward creature, like they're completely emotionally honest. They bring the food back for everyone to share. And they might be aggressive to one another, but it's like everything's... There's no deception. And it's no wonder, do you know, in the first koan that we used, you know, does a dog have Buddha nature, that we've chosen dog as the animal. In a sense, dogs are just the most naive, emotionally straightforward. There's a book written called Dogs Never Lie About Love. Human beings lie about love. So no wonder we're... We, we, we come back to a reference to, to dogs and Buddha nature. Joko in her book Everyday Zen starts it off referring to her pet dog. Just this simple creature just needs to be fed, exercised, patted and everything is fine. Human beings are far more complicated than that. They're far crazier than that. So Dharma practice, when you look at the words nirvana and samsara that we use quite frequently, to put it in everyday language, psychological language, what we're referring to as samsara is really um, insanity, craziness. the The way that greed, hatred and ignorance plays itself out through individuals and families and communities and and nations. Um, Samsara is craziness. And nirvana, by contrast, is is sanity. Um, So the Dharma practice that we're doing is a pathway towards craziness, towards sanity. And it's not a sanity that you find outside of the world, it's kind of like a sanity that you find within samsara. Mm-hmm. You find a still point within yourself as we experience, as we go through session. We don't really learn anything, if anything we unlearn. But through that process there's a, a settling down into our, into our sense of being. Um, not in any fixed separate kind of sense, but into a sense of being that's immersed in life. And as we settle down into that, we actually do become more sane. Everyone, I think, experiences in their own way, mostly, you know, that, uh, with some exceptions, that you, you go through a session and you kind of feel saner at the end of it than when you came in. Because things have had a chance to, to settle. Now, the way that our Western culture has tried to navigate itself through this kind of craziness is mostly through logic and reason, you know, and through the the use of language. And it's a very valuable tool. I really value um, the education that I've had, and I hope you value the education you've had as well. It's a wonderful thing that we've been given. Um, to be able to 
look at things logically and to cut through deception, you know, when it occurs, have a way of trying to understand it. Um, so it's not as though Zen practice, which is a more of a non-conceptual kind of practice, it's not opposed to logic and common sense and reasoning. But in a sense we go below it. Mm-hmm. We go below it and we look out from a, a non-conceptual place and, and logic is just a tool, one of the tools that we use. But there is a deeper kind of intuitive wisdom which is a source of sanity from a, a Dharma perspective that we're touching on. Um, recently um, I've been reading a, a wonderful book called Curiosity by an, an Argentinian man called Alberto Alberto Mangualo, and he's very much in a Western tradition. He's a man who obviously loves language and words, and um, is steeped in all of the classics like Dante's um, Divine Comedy, and and also Alice in Wonderland. And um, and I want to re- uh, read you a little bit about what he says about Alice in Wonderland because it's kind of pertinent to what we're looking at here. Because, as you remember from having read it, I presume, many years ago, um, Alice goes into a kind of underworld, just like Dante goes into an underworld. And he goes into a crazy, she goes into a crazy world. Alice, as we have said of Dante, is armed with only one weapon for the journey, language. It is with words that we make our way through the Cheshire Cat's Forest and the Queen's Croquet Ground. It is with words that Alice discovers the difference between what things are and what they appear to be. It is her questioning that brings out the madness of Wonderland, hidden as in our world under a thin coat of conventional respectability. We may try to, f- try to find logic in madness, as a duchess does, by finding a moral to everything, but the truth is, as the Cheshire cat tells Alice, that we have no choice in the matter. Whichever path we follow, we will find ourselves among mad people, and we must use language the best we can to keep a grip on what we deem to be our sanity. Words reveal to Alice that the only indisputable fact of this bewildering world is that under an apparent rationalism, we are all mad. Like Alice, we risk drowning ourselves in our own tears. We like to think, as the dodo does, that no matter in what direction or how incompetently we run, we should all be winners and we all are entitled to a prize. Like the white rabbit, we give orders left and right as if others were obliged and honoured to serve us. Like the caterpillar, we question the identity of our fellow creatures but have little idea of our own, even on the verge of losing that identity. We believe with the duchess in punishing the annoying behaviour of the young but we have little interest in the reasons for that behaviour. Like the Mad Hatter, we feel that we alone have the right to food 
and drink at a table set for many more. And we cynically offer the thirsty and hungry wine when there is no wine and jam every day except today. Under the rule of despots like the Red Queen, we are forced to play mad games with inadequate instruments, balls that roll away like hedgehogs and sticks that twist and turn like flamingos. And when we don't succeed in following the instructions, we are threatened with having our heads chopped off. And so it goes on a bit, but where it comes to um, is that this underworld, this wonderland that Alice goes to, we know because it's the world that we live in, as he says. Fellow travellers, we readers recognise in Alice's journey, as we do in Dante's, the themes ever-present in our lives, pursuit and loss of dreams, the attendant tears and suffering, the race for survival, being forced into servitude the nightmare of confused self-identity, the effects of dysfunctional families, the required submission to nonsensical arbitration, the abuse of authority, perverted teaching, the impotent knowledge of unpunished crimes and unfair punishments, and the long struggle of reason against unreason. All this and the pervading sense of madness are in fact a summary of the book's table of comments. Mm -hmm. Very sobering, <laughs> but, but, uh, but funny look at the world that we live in. It is crazy. Mm -hmm. And um, as I said before, our practice here this week is about finding um, a sanity within, within that insanity. And it's not one which is based on logic and on words. In my own personal experience, um, when I was in my late teens and 20s, I did a um, degree in philosophy. That was, when I look back on it, that was my, my way of trying to find my way through the craziness of what is true and what is false through logic. And um, like the Buddha, it came to a dead end. The Buddha did that as well. He studied with all the philosophers of his day to try and find some way through this craziness, through logic, but it comes to a dead end. Mm -hmm. And that's good when it comes to a dead end because it takes you deeper. Mm -hmm. And it's not as though we have no skills to, to help us along the way. Um, Zazen is our skill. You know, mindfulness is our skill. The thing that brings us back to sanity each time is when we turn up to this moment as it is. Coming back to this moment, life as it is, is the, is the touch point of sanity all of the time. When you start spinning stories, even the logical stories, trying to work things out in the head, this is where you get some kind of chaos occurring, but we drop down below that. And the other thing we do in our daily lives, even though we live in a world of deception, we take up the ethical precepts of Zen, and really what you're doing is making a commitment not to deceive. 
even though we live in a world of deception, we're making up a commitment to the best of our ability not to deceive. That also grounds us as well. There is um, some words from a Zen poem that we used to recite in the, in the Diamond Sangha from years ago that come, came back to me. Um, the practice of Zen in this greedy world this is the power of wise vision. The lotus lives in the midst of the fire. It will never be destroyed. But what is the lotus a metaphor here? Something substantial? Mm -hmm. Something solid? No. The lotus is a representation of what we're doing here in the Dharma, is the recognition of the empty nature of everything and the transient nature of everything. And it's in that uh, transience, in that emptiness that we rest, that's the place we find through our practice. And that's the place, from a Zen perspective, where we find our sanity.